Hi everyone, welcome to The Human Show, proudly presented and supported by worldpodcast.com. Here we explore the relationships between people, technology and business. Join us on this journey where we interview anthropologists, other researchers and industry people from all over the world, from India to Kenya, US, Europe, to right back here in New Zealand. Hi friends, in today's episode we are talking to Jennifer Sairns, soprano, anthropologist, podcast host and a UX researcher. We explore together Jennifer's multiple and equally strong yet seemingly unrelated careers. We ask how she balances the different skills that are needed and how she makes spaces for them inside herself. As a soprano, Jennifer is used to being in the spotlight, so we are curious how she manages to equally embrace the role of the silent observer. Being busy keeps Jennifer interested and thus allows her to accomplish more. But how to organize the workflow so that the thought-making process is given the deserved space and time? Jennifer also reflects on the highlights of her PhD project, which led her to writing a book, and on the unique working conditions that only academia can create. Listen to this episode to get energized by Jennifer's vibrant approach to life and research. We hope you enjoy it. Hi friends, we are here today with Jennifer uh, Cairns, yes, anthropologist and a soprano. Hi Jen. Hi, hi Corinna, thanks for inviting me. Now, I'm really very interested to dive into, into the context of your work. And, um, and yeah, I want to start with a, with a kind of a, maybe a provocative question because your biography, uh, as we, as we could see also from the descriptor, uh, anthropologist, soprano and many more others, is quite diverse and dynamic to say the least. Tell me and our listeners a little bit about yourself, but also how do you kind of, pick and choose where do you want to put your your time and investment in are there any kind of milestones that that define that journey for you thanks that's that is a really good question quite a difficult question for me to answer because i guess it all feels quite chaotic if it looks very busy from the outside it, it's because it feels very busy from the inside so uh as you said i'm an anthropologist and um i'm uh, so i'm an honorary research fellow at uh, the Department of Anthropology at University College London, and I'm also a fellow in public anthropology for the Royal Anthropological Institute, which I imagine we'll talk about in due course. But basically, that means I do a lot of kind of public engagement stuff as well. I try and get uh, the wider public to hear about anthropology, talking about our methods and the ethics of anthropological research, and I try to get anthropological researchers into the public domain. Uh, but then I'm also, as you said, a, a soprano. So I also have a sort of completely parallel career in classical music. Uh, and prior to COVID, I used to travel around the world doing that. Of course, that's drastically changed in the last, God, however long it's been, kind of eight months. Mm-hmm. Um, and then alongside that, I also have done sort of I've moved back and forth between academia and I guess the sort of private and public sectors. So I do quite a bit of what I guess we would call applied anthropology um, or some people would call it UX, um, but kind of ethnographic research, but often more embedded in a sort of technology or organizational kind of a context. And then in terms of you asked me about milestones, I mean, it's funny, I kind of read back the question and uh, I was just saying to you before we started recording that I suddenly thought, my gosh, I must have massive imposter syndrome because I didn't really recognize myself in it at all. It's funny, I think everybody I know who's an anthropologist also has about three or four other parallel careers. It doesn't seem to be a sort of a copy paste career path in that way. Uh, I think everybody uses their research skills and their communication skills to do all sorts of other exciting and interesting things that involve people 
Um, I think in my case, there have been a few, I guess, if I look back, a few moments where doors were opened or where I suddenly sort of understood what I was and was not good at, uh, I suppose you could say. Um, certainly a major milestone for me was uh, my first very long piece of ethnographic fieldwork, uh, which was in Cuba and also the US. And I also kind of got my first massive experience of public engagement because whilst I was there, I sort of accidentally found myself being broadcast on live television to the whole of Latin America in Spanish. And it was about three weeks in and I didn't speak excellent Spanish. Uh, so I had this sort of sudden slightly kind of panic inducing experience of having to summarize my research in a very succinct and clear way at a non-academic audience. And I have to say it was it, it was quite a traumatic experience for me at that time, but I've since I think got better at it. And I think it's uh, something that we all have to kind of learn to do to communicate our research, both to research participants and to perhaps people in tech or business um, and also to funders. And what came first, Jen, for you? Was it was it the anthropology? Was it being a soprano? Was it something else? Like, oh, it was definitely music. Actually, funny enough, I had absolutely no idea what anthropology was until I mean, I'd never heard of it. So, um, I <laughs> was probably a very very weird child. Like, I wanted to be a concert pianist, mm. and that is what I was training to be. And as far until I was sort of eighteen, my entire life was just classical music. And then I went off to university. Uh, not to do music, actually. I went off to study Portuguese literature, uh, like Renaissance Portuguese literature. Uh, and then I moved to Brazil. And I'd never heard the word anthropology at all until I moved to Brazil. And in Latin America, the word anthropology, I guess, is used slightly more in a slightly different context. It kind of often it's quite specifically about sort of working with indigenous communities. But I had never heard of it as a concept before then. Mm -hmm. uh, so then when I came back, I found out that this is actually a thing in the UK as well. And so I did a master's in it. And that, so I kind of found myself in anthropology kind of almost by mistake. And it came through working as a translator between English and Portuguese. And so it's funny. I mean, I've, I guess I've got this sort of patchwork career where I, you know, I love singing and I could never have stopped So I've just sort of doggedly and stubbornly refused to pick a side. And so I've kind of spent the last decade doing sort of three careers at once mm -hmm. and just hoping nobody would notice and that I'd get away with it. And it seems so far to have like so far, I just sort of seem to have fudged my way through. Oh, that's so cool. Like we have this in common. I also discovered anthropology in Brazil while I was working yeah. there. <laughs> um, oh, wow. I, Yeah, I was working in the business space for Natura, the cosmetic company. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and uh, it's a very cookie company. When I was working uh, uh, in it, it was not yet uh, um, corporate to the extent in which I think it's, it's more today. And that's we. I got in touch at contact with my first uh, team of anthropologists to work on a project, and I just fell in love. It was just, that's it, a project, and then you know. That's uh, yeah, funny. Yeah, I was... In my case, it was that I met somebody who said that he was an anthropologist and he was trying to, I think, come up with a way of documenting a, an indigenous language. And so it was about language and communication. And I was so interested in that. Um, and then actually, it turns out I, I then found out anthropology is far more than that. And I ended up doing something completely different and looking at kind of the digital smuggling in Havana in Cuba. Like, absolutely not what I thought I'd be doing. But um, that's what I love about anthropology, I guess. It's so diverse, uh, as long as there's some people in it. It's probably anthropology. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. And, and you know, um, 
I, I want to ask you, how do you how do you manage to because you said, you know, you, you've been doing this kind of three careers into one. And um, how do you prioritize? How do you have a personal life? How do you? There are so many questions around this. Your day. Uh, you have like Hermione Granger, that clock, you know, that you can go back. In time. <laughs> um, how do you do it? Um, with difficulty, I suppose, is the short answer. I think I'm getting better at it. There are certainly some things I've found to be more incompatible. So, for example, uh, you know, when I've had stretches of, of lot, like heavy teaching work where you actually, prior to COVID, have to be in a lecture theatre for many hours back to back. Clearly, that's not very flexible. It's a set time. Uh, and so that, that can be difficult to fit alongside, for example, some of the other work. Um, and likewise, I, I did a sort of stint working. Uh, I actually was very briefly a civil servant. Uh, I was you know, employed by uh, the Foreign Office. And again, kind of that sort of office rhythm of being employed and having to be in the same place every day. I guess what you might call presenteeism, uh, I found very, very difficult. I think one of the things that I love about academia uh, or, or I suppose the research element of academia is that I think as long as you can manage your own kind of workflow as long as you are basically productive <laughs> under the sort of formulation of late capitalism. If you, as long as you keep churning out publications, uh, then no one's going to really mind. And so you, you know, if you're someone that can write from anywhere, I have definitely written, I think two chapters of my forthcoming book were written in airport lounges. You know what I mean? <laughs> so I think one thing is becoming quite good at using dead time and dead space, such as like waiting in an airport. Um, and the other useful thing actually about music is that much of it happens in the evening. Uh, and so unless I'm, I'm doing something that involves international touring, which might take a week or two out, um, if it's work based in the UK or in, or in Western Europe, then it's often sort of a couple of hours in the evening, which doesn't tend to clash with what most people consider to be normal working hours. Um, in terms of how I prioritize, That's definitely been a sharp learning curve for me. I think I used to be terrible at saying I didn't know how to say no. I think that's probably something many people who are in academia uh, probably would understand. Um, so I've definitely got much clearer about saying no uh, to things that I don't think are actually interesting or very vague, like not really kind of thought out. Sometimes people will say, oh, do you fancy talking in this conference? We're not sure what it's about, but, you know, it, it's going to be fun. And I'm like, um, yeah, thanks. Come back to me. We'll actually know what you want. Um, but, yeah, I suppose I think also in a sense, the busier you are, I think the more For me, at least, the more productive I am, I, I'm, I'm far busier when I'm trying to do three. I'm, so, I'm far sort of more successful and productive when I'm trying to balance three things. If I, I have a very short attention span, uh, which in some career paths would really be a big problem. But yeah. fortunately, I think when, when you're kind of juggling things, it means that I stay interested if I'm doing three things at once. Whereas I think if I was just sat doing one task for five hours, I wouldn't get it done. Yeah, well, I have a, a correlated question with, to that, but bear with me because I haven't had time to conceptualize it properly. <laughs> um, this busyness and, you know, this kind of like being able to hold multiple things at the same time in your head and act on them. And what does that do to your sense-making process of sitting with complexity and thinking oh. and writing? Because I personally have that struggle. I'm also addicted yeah. to speed and time and I'm permanently yeah. curious But at the same time, if I have to sit with something complex or even read something or think deeply uh, about something, I almost have to kind of retrain myself for several days 
So um, I feel I'm stupid if I if I don't do that process. But and I think I probably used to not give myself that time. And I would rush something out and it was probably fine, but not necessarily as good as it could have been. And something, I mean, COVID has massively changed, of course, this entire work pattern. The, I think the time when I have my sort of, I guess, like epiphany moments tends to be, uh, I'm either basically hiking or gardening, uh, usually doing something that involves physical activity, but it's not kind of distracting me in terms of my sort of, I guess, like intellectual processes. So I love walking. I love kind of hiking. I've just done uh, a large part of the Camino de Santiago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I suddenly thought, oh, I'm going to rewrite my entire book like on that on that walk because there's nothing else is there to do other than kind of walking 30 miles a day and thinking. Um, and actually, I used to when I back in the day when we used to commute until eight months ago, I used to find uh, London's tube system a very helpful <laughs> place to think because otherwise it's dead time. You sort of stand there squashed under someone's armpit and suddenly have this, you know, wonderful moment where you think about, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Social or something. <laughs> Okay. Another question, because I find this fascinating. I, I have the same uh, uh, approach and, and also challenges that I hope you can now help me with. Um, <laughs> how do you stay present in your body and out of your mind? And Or do you do that? Um, uh, short answer is I'm really bad at that. Really bad at that. Um, and I've sort of experimented usually in very sort of short uh, lived ways at thinking, oh, I'll try Pilates. Oh, I'll try this. And I usually try it. And within two weeks, they've sort of stopped. Not not consciously, but I'm not doing it anymore. And I've definitely had problems with that in the past. I've definitely had problems where things like I might sometimes forget to eat. I've definitely I've lost a lot of weight before because it's not been a priority for me. I'm just sort of caught up rushing around in a busy schedule. Um, and I do think actually that when you have a busy schedule for the re for me, it's because I have various different work things and they often involve antisocial hours, certainly singing does. Um, it can be quite difficult to remember to do sort of normal things like have meals, uh, especially in the evening if I'm out working uh, or if you're commuting or traveling or whatever. Uh, it's something uh, I'm not good at and I try to surround myself with people who nag me to do. Uh, I'm lucky <laughs> in my friends, I think, now. No, great. It was actually something I used to love and I miss, but um, I was very lucky uh, during my PhD that I used to share a working space with other people. Mm -hmm. uh, I was working on different things, but that rhythm of seeing, oh, everybody else is going to have lunch. Oh, maybe I should be going to do that. And they would make me go with them. It's was, it was very useful for me. It's probably my biggest sort of challenge when it comes to working remotely yeah. uh, is that I don't have that external reminder of, you know, yeah, normal things like walking, <laughs> eating. Yeah, yeah. Maybe, you know, it also comes from my uh, misconceptions about what it means to be a soprano singer. I come from Eastern Europe and we have a, where I, 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 I grew up uh, with a habit of going to the opera and listen to classical music, which I love. Uh, and I lived in Vienna and now in Amsterdam as well. And I always had this kind of maybe naive uh, imagination about sopranos or singers that, that somehow singing is a form of kind of like being in the body, like meditating through the body instead of, um, uh, a cognitive act of, of, uh, a steered performance. No? <laughs> so, uh, right though uh, there is something very it's something I and it's something I really miss at the moment um, because it's something that uh, usually slows me down a lot not the rushing to the rehearsal and all of that yeah. bit but when you're actually on stage doing it 
and if everything's going roughly according to plan, <laughs> uh, then yes, it, it's, it's true. It's a very embodied process where you are slowed down to sort of thinking about breathing and yeah. I suppose I probably do take from that what perhaps some people find in yoga or something like that. And of course, it's also a very physical process. Uh, it's very, uh, uh, it involves a lot of stamina and a lot of muscle control. Um, and, you know, it feels a bit like doing a sort of series of crunches when you're singing <laughs> high and fast and loud. Uh, so, yes, I think that's also uh, it's a completely different headspace, I guess, to my sort of academic work. And so in an ideal world, you know, without uh, the current pandemic, going between the two sort of, I think, gives me what I want. Balance. from both. Yeah. yeah, and and I I think that's a very good bridge to 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 speaking about your PhD work because um, my my personal lens, you know, looking into the into the topic of your PhD is that it, it also somehow um, shows an interest in phenomenology or maybe that's how I I kind of read it. But it's a fascinating topic and I don't want to butcher it. So I wonder if you could if you could you know give 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 me your elevator pitch of your PhD. Oh let's see if I can give an elevator pitch I, well <laughs> I can give you a quick a quick summary I'll try I'll try and get this really succinct uh, so my I, uh, research was mostly split between Havana in Cuba and Miami in the USA and Miami is where there's a very large Cuban diaspora uh, mm-hmm. and I guess Miami is sort of seen as like the sort of epicenter of everything we might imagine capitalism to be sort of yachts and music videos and cocktails and all of this. And then, of course, Cuba lives under, uh, continues to be a socialist country, albeit a changing one. Uh, and so my research was all about uh, the sort of flows of material and digital stuff that kind of gets taken back and forth, uh, sometimes Illegally, sometimes I think I prefer the term informally uh, to illegally uh, because, of course, there's an embargo, which means that technically there are certain uh, items you're not allowed to take back and forth and travel between the two places is very controlled and very limited. Uh, But not if you have a UK passport, as I do. Uh, And so I was able to go back and forth more easily, in fact, than pretty much anybody else that I met in the course of my research. And my uh, PhD and, and now the sort of book, which will be out at some point, God knows when, probably in the next year, uh, when it's gone through printing, uh, kind of conceptualizes what I ended up calling the mula ring. So mula uh, is Spanish for a mule and, of course, can also mean people who sort of, I suppose you might use the word smuggle items back and forth. Uh, and mulas are people who professionally or often professionally uh, carry items uh, covertly between Cuba and places like Miami. Uh, But also my research ended up taking me to Guyana, to Mexico, to Panama. If I had had time, I also wanted to go to Ecuador and Venezuela and Russia and all sorts of other places. It got, it kind of escalated and got bigger and bigger and I wasn't able to go to absolutely everywhere. Uh, but it turned out that this is an enormous economy. Uh, and, uh, I suppose the other element of it that I think has got particular public interest has been the fact that Cuba has very limited internet access. Certainly when I arrived, it was extremely difficult to get online, extremely expensive. Um, mm. And so much of the sort of digital content that you or I might get online, like podcasts or like, uh, you know, Netflix type content or, or anything really, uh, circulates hand to hand in Cuba through a sort of network, uh, which 
I sort of then did a lot of research in and sort of tried to, try to sort of conceptualize uh, as a exchange network. Uh, and that piece of sort of research about this uh, system, if you like, or network, which is called El Paquete, has, I think, got a lot of interest uh, because it's sort of seen as this sort of like offline Netflix kind of uh, system, which everything is very cool. You know, making order out of chaos. It's something that I find very interesting when it comes to this kind of particular topic of interest, right? It just seems it's such a, such a complex flow of movement and shapes, and um, yeah, it, it 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 does also kind of fits with with uh, the way you you've been describing approaching things or career, and it kind of links in my head yeah. to what I wanted to ask you next. Was like for me, like committing to a PhD is as a as a person that has so many curiosities and deep and various interests seems almost like more serious than committing to marriage or to kids, you know, is that, <laughs> so, oh, can I, can I, can I do that? Can I, if I, you know, like, it just seems like a very uh, strong, uh, rigid uh, kind of commitment. And there seems to be a, a kind of freedom inherent in the topic that you've chosen, what I'm thinking in my head, um, that could remove some of those barriers if I would have to make that choice. But I'm curious for you, uh, what, what made you commit to a PhD and, and this particular topic? Um, I think probably in one word, selfishness, actually. Um, basically, before my PhD and after my master's, I went off and I worked uh, for a couple of years in the civil service. And I was sort of I, I went abroad working for the sort of diplomatic service. And I did all sorts of things that I thought I wanted for my career. And then I found that I just really didn't enjoy them. I really didn't enjoy working for somebody else. Uh, it turns out that I'm just not as interested in problems as defined by other people as much as I am interested in what I think is important and relevant. Uh, and I missed that sort of intellectual depth of really grappling and tackling sort of, uh, I guess, a, a question or a problem for a long period of time. Uh, and yeah, I, I guess I, yeah, I just, so I ended up applying to a PhD. I was very lucky, I think, also that my, my supervisor, I think, was very understanding of the fact that I had all this other stuff going on. And I think he recognized that, uh, I would get it done, uh, if he let me do it my way, which sometimes did mean me saying, Oh, I'm actually in Shanghai singing at the moment. So I'll get back to you next week. He was, he was wonderful about that. I don't think everybody would have been. Um, <laughs> and in a sense, I think that, uh, it, it gave me the freedom to pursue what I think is interesting. And of course, that did change because I think that's how good research works. You don't know what you're going to find until you start. Uh, my PhD topic changed quite significantly over over the sort of whatever it was, three years that I was doing it uh, for. Uh, but it also sort of has an overarching structure, which I think is something that's very useful for me. Uh, I, I'm also very stubborn, so I would never give up on something I start on. So there's actually no question that I would have dropped out. But I think the fact that I had to do it within this sort of preordained format, which is what the world decrees constitutes a PhD, probably helped keep me under control or I probably never would have finished this piece of research. I mean, it could have gone off in all sorts of other directions that I still would like to pursue one day. I think that's really great. It, it really makes me think of, of, you know, what what do you need to find freedom within this constraints of, of, of structure? And And how kind of like do you deal with concepts such as power and control uh, when it comes to handling uh, a project like a PhD? But maybe it's too big of a question. I don't know. <laughs> um, I think it's a challenge that a lot of academics face, which is that on the one hand, something that I, I find really um, that I really like about academia, if you want to call it that, is that there's this sort of relative freedom to decide and to sort of 
challenge and critique what should and should not be up for discussion to kind of create the framework that you then work in. And it's very freeing, I think, in that sense, compared to doing, uh, you know, as I mentioned, I've done sort of applied anthropology type work in the tech sector, for example, sort of digital user research and stuff. And of course, there, there's somebody else telling you this is the this is the problem that we want you to go and you know look at. This is uh, our profit margin that we want to go up. Off you go. And so in comparison to that, doing academic research is wonderfully freeing. But of course, there's also uh, increasingly a lot of other bureaucracy that comes into it, having to apply for funding, it being very opaque and not knowing how to get funding and try how to convince other people. And, you know, I don't think there's a sort of easy answer. I mean, there are lots of other structures that are placed upon you. Uh, I, I love teaching as well. But of course, that does take a huge amount of time to plan teaching. Uh, and it's very difficult to then go off and do field work and research around that. Um, so I don't think there's a sort of, unfortunately, it's not, if there's a one size fits all answer, I haven't found it yet. Uh, so I'm sort of still stubbornly holding on to my three parallel careers and hoping no one notices. <laughs> And, and, you know, I mean, if you found your own way of kind of navigating your own non-negotiables and, and if, if you do that kind of like in a flexible way and you say, you know, if I'm in this career, my non-negotiable is this, but then it gets it gets kind of covered in the other one. So you're kind of like making out of the three maybe a, an ecosystem that works for your personality the best. <laughs> yeah, actually, interestingly enough, the sort of question of a non-negotiable, like a line for me, I think is probably most obvious uh, when I think about um, my sort of more like applied anthropology UX kind of work, uh, where that obviously, I mean, there's a, it's a, there's a vast spectrum of different types of organizations you could work in and for doing that kind of work. And I've definitely turned down an enormous amount of kind of contract offers that have come in because I've looked at it and just decided that I don't find it interesting or that I don't see any kind of social good that would come from it, which I only realized, I guess, after a few years of trial and error, it is something that I care about. I care about um, doing something that if it's not sort of for the sake of the production of knowledge, as academia often is, uh, then at very least it needs to be something, a product or a service that I actually feel could make a difference. Uh, so, for example, my, my postdoc uh, project, um, which is with um, Hannah Knox, who you met and that's how we met, um, was doing research into the uh, in a local council in London, looking at the way in which AI and algorithms are being used in the social care system. Uh, and at the moment, I'm doing some work also in the health, like in the healthcare sector. But they're sort of sectors that I actually care about, and that I think good research practice can, you know, improve lives through. As opposed to, I mean, I, I put it this way: like I've never pursued doing applied anthropological work in finance, for example. It's not something that uh, speaks to me. That takes me to my next question, which um, again, maybe I am um, naive in, in romanticizing your career as a soprano, because uh, so I apologize in advance if, if that is implied in my question. But um, I imagine that as a trained vocalist, you carry kind of like a set of traits and habits um, uh, that kind of when entering a new field, like such as ethnographic research, how, how does it work for you? I assume that as a soprano, as a trained vocalist, you're quite of used of being in the spotlight for others to see. How, how do you make that shift between being in front of the stage to kind of being on the sidelines as an observer? 
I think what I'm about to say is going to sound scarily kind of philosophical and forgive me meta, but I just think the whole of life is a performance. I start, it makes me start wondering kind of when I'm ever sort of switched off. I think something, I don't know, have you ever heard of the Myers-Briggs test? Have you ever come across it? Yeah, I, I, I'm not a psychologist. I have no idea if this is a, you know, a bona fide kind of uh, test, but I, I did do it once. A friend asked me to do it, and I came out as 50% extrovert and 50% introverted, which I thought was interesting because most people who meet me just think I am, I'm always the loudest person in the room. I'm always, and that's the sort of soprano performer kind of personality that comes out. And of course, that's the version of me that is, if I'm lecturing or, or, or presenting my research on the radio or whatever, that's, that's the version of me that everybody sees. Um, but I don't always seek out the spotlight, actually, and I do actually quite enjoy it not being. I love the fact that anthropological research is not about me. Uh, and in fact, when you sent me over some questions for this, I suddenly thought, oh, God, I've never thought about this before. I've never really thought about myself in this because I, I, I'm very interested in other people and communicating with them. And I think that's probably the thing that underpins you know, anthropology, translation, singing. It's all about telling stories. It's all about communicating emotion to somebody to an audience um the other thing i suppose i found at least with my field work both in brazil and in cuba actually um i'm not quite sure what this says about me but both cases i found i had sort of sought out somehow a community that was going to be quite difficult to get access to so for example in cuba most of my research was with young men who were involved in sort of peripherally semi-legal activities and probably didn't, you know, they weren't going to go out of their way to talk to me. And so I suppose in a sense to gain the trust of people over a long period of time does involve a sort of constant presentation of yourself and, you know, the ability to communicate who you are and what you're doing. And uh, there are elements of that, I guess, confidence that I've got from my singing that have definitely sort of uh, helped uh, in my, in some of my other work that's that's interesting so is there then an element of this kind of resistance of a certain community that draws you in as a kind of a challenge to to enter that space <laughs> yeah that's a, that's a that's a good question i mean maybe on on some level although actually funny enough part of the reason that what i, what I had originally planned to be my phd project it, it changed quite a bit and that was partly because i decided that uh, I wasn't the person to do it. I had a bit of a sort of a, uh, I suppose a mental health crisis, really. I kind of got to Cuba and just suddenly realized that this was just going to be, uh, I'm sure very interesting research, but some very interesting research that somebody else needs to do. <laughs> I was not the person to do it. Um, and, and I did end up doing elements of it, but I had to sort of slightly shift the scope of my project to become something that I felt I could do. Um, without having a complete breakdown. Um, and, and that was partly due to the fact that, yes, it was going to be, if not necessarily physically dangerous to me, then certainly I think emotionally harmful to me to have done what I'd originally conceived of doing. Um, and again, I was lucky that I sort of talked that through with my uh, then supervisor and he was very supportive of saying, okay, no, <laughs> you can't do it that way. Uh, whereas actually five years ago, I would have done it anyway and probably had a breakdown. So I'm gradually, I'm gradually getting better. <laughs> So, so do you have, let's say, like some form of accountability buddies to your that can mirror your stubbornness <laughs> and, uh, and, and your ambition? Away, <laughs> come back to me. I'm now going to steal that idea. 
that is, a, I mean, yes, I suppose probably my brother. My, my, my younger brother is uh, does sort of what we might say, quote unquote, like, I don't know, real job. He is, he's a doctor. So he has a job that is sort of everybody else recognizes as a job. Can you imagine being me trying to explain to people what I do? <laughs> Whenever I go to dinner party or something, I just decide the quickest way of ending that conversation is just to say I'm an accountant. Nobody ever asks you a follow-up question if you say you're an accountant. They were like, oh, right, how interesting. And then they changed the subject. Uh, <laughs> but, um, so my, my, yeah, my, my brother is a, a good little kind of litmus test. Yeah, for, for, you know, I have, I have a similar, uh, challenge with kind of, uh, uh, imagining, um, uh, that I could do anything and, you know, like the, the higher the, the, the wall, the, the more interesting is the challenge. Uh, and then as you're mentioning about the stubbornness and the fact that, you know, uh, okay, let's do it. It's going to work out. And then it's, it's, it's quite difficult for me in my, with my personality to find kind of like, uh, accountability moments where you say, well, is it healthy for you? Like maybe we should stop. Maybe you should pass it on. Like now you're, you're, Stubbornness is not an asset, it's a liability. <laughs> so, yeah. It's definitely a liability for me. Um, and in terms of accountability, I guess something that's probably telling is I, I would always consider myself accountable to the, the people in my research. Uh, and I would always put those their needs above my own. And I certainly did have some sort of slightly hair-raising moments in, in this research where I was in places that were quite dangerous and I was helping them do things and I suddenly thought, oh no, I've, I've got to, you know, I've got to stop. Um, and it's a, it's a very difficult line. I mean, I guess that's part of the kind of quote unquote deep hanging out, isn't it, of sort of participant observation that you spend a very long time getting sort of very intimately acquainted. Uh, and, and it's very difficult to sort of, and I found it very difficult at least to sort of hold on to who I was. I even, you know, if, if you're spending all your time speaking this other language, I came back to London and I actually found that quite a traumatic return in a way. Like I, it was a, it was a bit like landing on a plane with a big bump. You know, it was it was a very strange experience to kind of come back from this very different life that I was I was leading there and then suddenly find myself sort of back again and yeah, this other almost I mean the same body but almost like I'd arrived into being a different person again. It, it's quite strange. Um, and I guess a continuation of, as I said, like, there's sort of different versions of me. There's the sort of singer version of me, and I know all the singers in London. And then there's a different anthropologist me, and I know the anthropologists. And, uh, and so I also have to have a version of me that just sits very, very quietly in silence and doesn't talk to people and sort of recovery. Yeah. yeah. So let me let me ask a cheeky question. Mm-hmm. If you would be have to go on a, a desert island and choose just one version of yourself to take with oh. you. <laughs> Which one would that be? You're only allowed one. Oh, definitely the, um, yeah, the sort of loud, obnoxious one. Because they would definitely be the, the first one to get noticed and picked up by a passing ship. <laughs> I mean, the quiet, sitting still version of me would be of no use whatsoever. Uh, definitely, yeah, the, that version of me, for all of its sort of harm that it can do me, is definitely the one that would come up with a plan and leave that island. So, yes. Yeah, and I, I'm a I'm a big fan of watching Survivor, like you know the show where they put this. Movie. Yeah, so I was going through my head now. Well, if if, if Jen would would be on Survivor, uh, like I I wonder what what type of kind of um version of you would be successful in that in that context with that type of game. Oh no, this reminded me of this. <laughs> really good training exercise I had to do once it was um in my first week I joined the the foreign office and it was like a sort of onboarding process it was like an HR 
signing on thing. And we got put into groups of sort of 10 people with other people who were also joining, complete strangers that I didn't know. And uh, we got told to sit in a circle. And there was this, we were given a scenario and we were told, you all have to come up with a mutual decision on what you're going to do. And then there were sort of examiners that were sitting outside of us looking in and we were also being filmed to see how we responded to one another. And the scenario was exactly as you said. I think it was in a desert, though. You might, it's quite a common training thing. We, the plane goes down in a desert. You're allowed to pick five things, et cetera, et cetera. What do you do? And the interesting thing about this scenario, I obviously don't know the answer to the question. I know nothing about survival in a desert. Absolutely nothing. And I was by far the youngest person in this group of people. Uh, most of the other people were sort of men in their 40s. And so I, on some subconscious level, decided I was going to take control of the situation and I was going to be in charge. And so I convinced everybody else in this group, in this hypothetical scenario, that I knew the answer and that we had to do what I wanted. Uh, and at the end of the test, the examiners said that obviously I had killed everybody in this hypothetical scenario. <laughs> I, I the reason that everybody would die. Uh, but the thing they showed on the camera was that I'd actually been we were sitting in a circle and I had been using my body language to block people from seeing each other. I had leant into the circle so that nobody could look across at each other to sort of physically dominate this scenario. Uh, so to, to wind back to your question about survival tactics, I mean, I think the most important thing is if I was stuck on an island for everybody else's benefit, I would need to be on my own because if anybody else is there, I, I can, I've learned from history that apparently I would kill them. <laughs> <laughs> wow. But it, it must be such a great experience to be able to kind of like see yourself from that perspective. You know, it was sort of 23 year old me just telling all of these older men, no, sit down. You're going to go over there. You're gonna, and they all did it. No, well, it, it showed me, I guess, power. I, I, I was really, I, I, well, I'm still talking about it now, nearly 10 years on. I still remember this thing because I remember realizing that I had the power in this particular scenario to make people do what I said. And I used that power to kill them all in this hypothetical scenario. But it was interesting, like as a kind of interpersonal exercise to understand, you know, uh, if you're the sort of person that can be really kind of performative and really loud, that can be really great. But you also need to know when to shut up and when yeah, your voice is yeah. not the one that everyone should be listening to. Yeah. And I, I was, it was a good lesson. Yeah, and this is what attracts me a lot to anthropology, but anthropology forces me personally to sit in that position of an observer as a, as a task in itself, so that I do not go directly into the group and claim my position there and say, we're going to do this and this and this, because that also, that's also something that comes very naturally to me, and, and with anthropology and also with language. Yeah? I'm now working for a Dutch company, and everybody is Dutch. I'm the only one that is non-Dutch. And everybody speaks Dutch to me, and I speak back in English because I'm not fluent yet. But just the fact, just that act of people speaking a language that you don't fully command uh, forces me to um, listen. And that creates a different power dynamic in the group. Uh, and then I, I, I'm a different person in that group that I would normally be if I sit in my power, right? Or if I sit in my... Uh, yeah. yeah. And it's also, I think, uh, I suppose when you sort of start... My sense, and at least when I was doing my field work, I, I started to sense that I was getting close to understanding things when they felt almost because you you plot the, the difference of something feeling completely alien to you to you gradually understanding it, and it's such mm -hmm. a and, and that's actually a very humbling process, I think. Um, and yes, I think also, and funny enough, this is actually why I decided to do my research in Cuba and not in Brazil 
because I have some sort of family connections to Brazil. And I decided I was always going to insert myself in, like I was always going to be trying to sort of dominate the situation in some way. Whereas in Cuba, I had never been before. Spanish is not my first language. In every possible regard, I was like a small child. I knew, I had no idea how anything worked. And there is something about, uh, yes, like participant observation of having to learn from other people and be humble about it, uh, which is certainly great as a research methodology, but also like a, a useful <laughs> task of self-improvement for me. Yeah, and also a kind of maybe an exercise in, 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 in kind of belonging to a community in, in a, from a different positionality. Maybe, mm. maybe that also draws you towards uh, groups that are very difficult to access. <laughs> <laughs> that that is it, maybe it's also a form of kind of exercising humbleness and uh, I, I don't know. <laughs> well, funny enough, something about it's actually something I quite like about uh, my singing as well. Although it might not be the popular conception of what singing is like, um, I'm actually always entirely beholden to what the conductor wants. Mm. And this is a whole separate conversation, but as it happens, the conductor is almost always also a man. Uh, and, and it's a kind of a well-known thing in, in the British singing tradition that they will often call, you know, women girls. It's something quite infantilizing about it, uh, as a process, uh, which can grate on me sometimes. But it, there is something about the fact that you are almost just like a vessel for the music. You are just required to faithfully try to communicate what is on the page in front of you. And in terms of the interpretation of it, et cetera, et cetera, that's actually all with the conductor or perhaps with some of the, you know, the instrumentalists with you. Uh, and there is something also kind of quite, I find quite relaxing about that. I, basically, I sort of feel like I do what I'm told. Yeah. Now, I, I, I'm continuously fascinated, Jen, with the, with the breadth and broadness of, of the initiatives that you take on. And, and I, I think somehow my, my, my last question also was to touch a little bit on, on that. Um, on some other projects that you're involved with, like such as the, your podcast in Being Human and, and also um, the Illustrating Anthropology exhibition, they both kind of show also this desire of broadening up the space of ethnography, anthropology to wider audiences. So I'm curious, when do you find time for that? This, this is more of a little bit of theme. Do you do it like at night in the holidays? Um, and, and, you know, like, Tell me a little bit more about where is the inspiration sitting behind these initiatives? And um, So both of the projects you just outlined, uh, so firstly, I have to mention that all of this I do alongside a colleague and a very dear friend of mine, Laura Hapio-Kirk. So together we are both, we sort of share this Leach Fellowship uh, in Public Anthropology, which was a role that the Royal Anthropological Institute kind of, we were, we were the first people to do it. It started in December last year and we applied for it. Uh, and basically... They kind of didn't really, the REI, I don't think, really necessarily knew what they wanted. They just knew that they wanted to have, I think in their words, they said they wanted a David Attenborough for the anthropology world. I don't think I quite delivered that. That bar was very, very high, I have to say. Um, but Laura and I kind of went to them and pitched a series of things that we thought, not only that we wanted to do, but actually I really, really believe that anthropology should be doing. Anthropology is about people. And so, I mean, I just think it's a moral duty that we have to communicate the work we do in various formats that are engaging to people. It's about people. Like, that's the whole point. Uh, alongside, clearly, the fact that we have to do academic publishing in order to get tenure and all of this. Like, there are a lot of other restrictions that I understand why it's, it's very difficult. I, for, for me, at least, I think a problem 
for academia generally is that a lot of this public engagement work ends up being, as you said, stuff that you have to do potentially unpaid or in addition to your work on the weekend, weekday evenings, which is what I've been doing this year. And that's possible because I don't have children. Uh, that would be a completely different scenario, I think, um, if I had a different kind of life right now. Uh, and that immediately limits the kind of you know, what, what is possible and who can take part in these things. And I think that's a big challenge for academia generally. What, you know, you might, sometimes people call it diversity work or engagement work or accessibility work. All of this stuff tends to be in addition to mm. all the teaching and the publishing and, and the work that we are all sort of mandated to do. Um, but in terms of why I think it's really important, um, you know, our, our sort of, Traditional outputs of publishing are not accessible to the public, even if they had the budget to pay for this extremely expensive book or, or whatever. It's also not written in ways that mm. are engaging and, and it's a different audience. Um, I, and I, I, you know, I, I know a lot of my friends and colleagues who sort of work with communities who don't speak English. There's a whole separate thing about, you know, feeling a moral duty to make that research relevant and accessible to people who are in the research. Uh, and so, yeah, we we planned this year. We were, the original plan was we were going to go around a lot of festivals. Like what, I don't really like the phrase world music, but world music festivals, whatever that means, and, and big philosophy festivals. And then, of course, COVID happened, and so all of that got cancelled. And so we had to suddenly rethink what could we do in a year where, you know, social distancing has become the phrase that everybody hears. Like how can we do sort of public engagement in these difficult times. Uh, and so there have been various initiatives. We've done some sort of ethnographic film festival stuff, but the main two things have been this art exhibition, uh, which we are doing in person and online somehow by the grace of God. <laughs> and also this podcast series, which is aimed at the general public. And the, the point of it is to get anthropologists talking about sort of big themes and topics that are of anthropological interest, um, but aimed at a general public sort of, to sort of reconceptualize what does it mean to, to be human and, and what does that look like across all sorts of different cultural um, contexts. Wonderful. Uh, and Jen, now just kind of like a closing off of our discussion, are there any new initiatives that you are kind of making space for or, or incubating in your brain? Any, any kind of like new, um, new things that you are thinking about? Ah, uh, that's, uh, I mean, yes. Uh, the we're, we're thinking about sort of a larger ongoing kind of home for some of this exhibition work. Um, it's it's turned into sort of a much larger thing than we thought it would. Uh, it, we, we put a call out about seven months ago or eight months ago across the world just saying, you know, anthropologists who are interested in illustration and other sort of graphic representations of your work get in touch. We had no idea that we were going to get hundreds of responses and that it would be of such. I mean, the caliber is incredible I really really was surprised uh, and so we're looking at also sort of doing more exhibitions with that and trying to get some of that into sort of a uh, new homes in a sort of post pandemic kind of world uh, and I'm really hoping that some of the materials that we've done with the podcast um, so I, I've done some stuff uh, with the BBC before I was um, a finalist with the BBC New Generation Thinkers so we're trying to see if there are some places where potentially some of that could land I have no idea what I'm going to find but uh, I'm certainly going to try and find somewhere a bit more permanent for some of that work. Sounds pretty cool. 
Yeah, I mean, anything else you have to just actually know you have to watch the space. It's very hard to yeah. say right now because it. Uh, COVID. I really hope I can hit up the festival scene next year. I was really looking forward to that. Yeah, I'll put the for those of our listeners. I'll put the links in the description for all of these wonderful initiatives that Jen is busy with. And um, well, thank you so much for being with us today, tonight. Thank you. Yeah, it was a pleasure, and uh, I almost feel like I got like an espresso shot into my veins. Oh, no. <laughs> to, to, I'm sorry. Me, to take me into my evening. Uh, so your uh, your energy. I'm 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 sorry. Uh, our listeners cannot uh, see you as well as this recording is done via screen. But it's been such a pleasure talking to you and getting to know you. You are Likewise. wonderful. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Yeah, and uh, no, I wish you a good evening. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening, everyone. Follow us on our social media channels and look at the show notes for links to our speaker's work. Join us next time for more interesting conversations.